Hi, and welcome to the first of our new podcast strand, More Pin and Bra in Conversation. So I'm Jyoti Bra, and I'll be hosting this discussion, but don't worry, you won't really be hearing very much from me. Uh, I really plan to keep out of the way as much as possible. Um, really, we're here because after Caleb interviewed Hapal a few months ago, we certainly at The Communists, we were inundated with requests for more. And, you know, when we thought about it, um, we realized that in this world of kind of corporate media disinformation and sound bites, um, actually there is a need for more considered reflection on topics of importance um, by scientific socialists, by serious people. Um, and a lot of you also really enjoyed the meeting of two Marxist minds from different generations and different parts of the world. And, you know, it's a reminder that our movement is international, it is intergenerational, um, it is relevant to everyone everywhere. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to turn to our first topic today, and that's the farmers' movement in India. And I'm going to ask Rapal to kick us off. Um, Caleb, any time you feel like jumping in with a reflection or a question of your own, uh, please feel free. Um, Rapal, I really, you know, you've lived in Britain more than, uh, more than 50 years, but of course you grew up on a farm in India, uh, in Punjab. And so... Um, I thought it was a good opportunity for us to, to ask you for your views on what's really at the root of the farmers' movement in India. You know, what is it that they're protesting about? The immediate context in which the recent farmers' struggle arose in 2020 was the passing by the government of three farm laws. And they were first of all introduced by executive order then taken to parliament and passed by a voice. You know, it's like having your crony sit there and say, ah, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And there was no discussion. Nobody from the farmers' organizations was consulted. Nobody from the opposition parties was consulted. And the government claimed that these laws were meant to liberate the farmers and help them to deal directly with the buyers of their produce so that they could get better prices earn more money and all be rich and very happy. The truth was just the opposite. These laws were meant to demolish the system that had been an operation whereby the produce by the farmers was sold, sold at regulated uh, markets known in, in India as mandis, And uh, th there was minimum sport prices that were guaranteed to the, to the farmers. Obviously, minimum sport price doesn't help everyone in the same proportion. The larger your land, the larger your produce, you'd get more. And the smaller the land, you get less. But all the same, since overwhelming majority of the 146 million farmers in India are small farmers who farm less than three acres, believe it or not. You know, for an American, it'd be impossible to believe you could have any agriculture on three acres. And therefore, if they were denuded of their price mechanism, the result would be that they'll have to sell directly to the corporate giants. Now, it's like talking theoretically of the equal bargain between the employer and the workman who hires himself out as having a contractual agreement with each other, which is done by equal parties. That is a theory but the practice is quite different. And basically the farmers were thrown under the bus and left to their own devices. That, that's really what this legislation was about. And is it a Punjabi movement? You know, when you, look, when you look at the pictures, you see a lot of Sikhs, you see a lot of turbans. That's, that, that's just um, ge geography. Punjab and Haryana which really are carved out of the old Punjab. Most of Punjab is in Pakistan. And what was left to us has been divided into, into three st states, two of which are Haryana and Punjab. But culturally and everything, they're very similar to each other. They abut Delhi. They're on the borders of Delhi. You leave Delhi and you go through Haryana to, to Punjab. And therefore it's easier for them to come to the capital and protest. But this movement was all India. 
once it was started, it spread to the far south of Kerala, through Maharashtra, through UP, which is a stronghold of the B BJP government. It spread ev ev everywhere. So it's not a Punjabi movement. But of course, what happens is, even if in the crowd, there are few of them, Sikhs are more visible than others. It, it's, like, it's like being a, a white person in a, in a largely black population. You know, the white person gets noticed and the, and the other way around. So the Sikhs have their turbans, they have their long beards. And of course, God, they got a very long tradition. When they establish these things, they establish communal kitchens where there's free food for everybody, whether they're participating in the strike or not. So you could see them more easily. And Caleb, you know, you came from a, a rural background yourself, I think. Is that right? You grew up oh, in the countryside? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in a small town in Ohio. Uh, you know, a lot of cornfields around where I grew up, for sure. Um, I mean, when I look at this, I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put this in like a, a longer context. Uh, I'm not as familiar, obviously, with the, the history of India. But it seems like, um, you know, that, it, you know, during the Cold War, uh, you know, the governments in India were sometimes aligned with the Soviet Union and were forced to kind of pass progressive legislation that would in some case protect uh, farmers, uh, protect labor unions and such. And uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious, is this this policy that the farmers wouldn't sell their produce directly, directly on the market, but rather to the government? And that was like a subsidy. Was that kind of a holdover from the Soviet aligned governments uh, of the past of the Cold War era? Um, just a question I'm asking. I mean, there might may have been an indirect influence um, of, of the Soviet Union on the question of laws. The Soviet Union never interfered and asked people to pass laws in a, to a certain extent. It, these were just measures taken uh, by the government. There was a lot of industry, for example, in India, which was nationally owned, because when the British left India, uh, not only were they overwhelming majority of the people pauperized, but there were not really many, many large capitalists who could invest in the industries that needed to be built in order to build India into a modern state. So steel and utilities and water facilities, everything was publicly owned because only through taxation and the government supplying money could these things be built. So you had to build something before it can be privatized. So since then, they've been privatizing uh, large sections of in Indian publicly owned industry. And farm laws were passed because the Indian working class movement was strong. It could actually insist on those laws being passed. And likewise, there was a farmer's lob lobby. So, but as all over the world, as less and less is left to make profits out of, the governments are everywhere looking for profiteering, like in Britain. They would love to privatize almost overnight the National Health Service. The problem is the British people, if they have any religion, it's the National Health Service. And it's much more difficult to privatize, although they've been doing it by Islamic tactics. And that's what's been proceeding in India. So the BJP government, which is even more oriented towards the United States, than the previous Congress government is obviously wanting to go exactly the same way. They want to privatize everything and um, they have to please their corporate friends, not only in India, but also abroad. That That's the trajectory of their travel. Yeah, well, I mean, Modi presents himself as if he's a nationalist, right? I mean, the BJP, uh, it's Hindu nationalism, right? I mean, but the more you look into it, uh, he's very much lined India up with the crusade against China, uh, backed by the British and American imperialists. Um, and now it seems like he's proceeding with these neoliberal reforms, uh, selling out the farmers uh, to international corporations and American agribusiness. Uh, he's not a nationalist at all. Uh, that it's it's hype. I mean, he, he's he's proving himself to to not be uh, what he purports to be. Not wanting to draw any parallels, but nationalism is much abused. After all, the Hitlers were nationalists. They, they, they called their party the National Socialist Party. They, they exploited the word nationalism. They exploited the word socialism because German working class was very keen on so socialism. And nationalism was brought in because this was really 
rousing the German people against the settlement after the First World War, namely the Vers Versailles Treaty. So as Stalin said in his speech after the start of the war, they are neither nationalists nor are they uh, uh, socialists. They are fascists and that, that's precisely what, what they are. But I'm not coming to the question of what Modi's government is. That's a characterization that has to wait probably the, the latter part of the conversation. And can I just ask then, you know, they, they've won a victory, the fight. How Sorry, they've won. Be, how can you be nationalist if all the policies you are pursuing are actually divide, dividing the Indian people against each other? The very proposition of nationalism is that you unite your people because you're fighting against some foreign element that is trying to dom dominate you. But the Modi has been trying to divide the Indians on the basis of religion, uh, Hindus against against Muslims, and of course they've been trying to uh, divide Indians on the basis of caste system, upper caste against lower caste. I mean the incidence of rape of women from the oppressed classes, known as the Dalits, is is notorious everywhere, and nothing is done to actually charge people who commit these heinous crimes. There are wow. movement against against the students, because the students are progressive. They've been, for example, protesting against the, the natural naturalization law that was passed in India, which discriminates against, against Muslims. Universities have been raided and academics and students arrested. So there's no nationalism there. Yeah. I was just going to ask, sorry, if I may, about the, the, the victory that's happened then. Um, the three laws that the Modi government passed, uh, they've promised that they will repeal them. And that was one of the demands of the farmers movement, but it wasn't their t entire demand, was it? So I was wondering, you know, is it enough of a victory? Are the, are the farmers demobilized now? Are they going to go home? Is, there, is their struggle over? First of all, those laws have been repealed. The farmers victory was so overwhelming and so decisive that when Modi made it, and, a television broadcast saying that they will take these laws back. The farmers refused to disband until the legislation had been repealed and was done within a minute. Normally, bourgeois parliaments take years of deliberation. Nothing is done. You come from day to day, you collect your allowances, you have your coffee, you have your whiskey, and you go home, right? But in this case, such was the pressure on Modi government these laws were repealed literally within days of Modi's speech. Both houses of parliament were convened and one after the other, they passed, passed these laws, repealing those three, three old, old, old laws. So that has been done. But the, the farmers had other demands. For example, minimum sport prices. They want a proper mechanism so they'll be compensated for their, uh, for their crops properly. They had general demands like pensions for everybody. They demand like guaranteed employment for 200 days a year for people work, the rural rural work, work, workers. And they, they, they had various demands of, of that kind. 10 kg of rice or wheat uh, every month for poor families uh, from government shops which sell at below market prices. So there were a number of demands and these are still being pursued. These are still being discussed. Uh, and they also wanted the labor codes to be withdrawn. We can perhaps come to this. One of the most remarkable things about this protest was actually the unity of the Indian people, whether they were Hindus or Muslims or Sikhs or Christians. Unfortunately, we got very few Jews left because after the formation of the state of Israel, most of them left, left for Israel. So that you have go to Cochin, there's a synagogue. There's not anybody even to switch the lights on and off um, because the last person doing it was too old and can't, can't do it. But most religions are represented in India and every one of them were at the barricades fighting. And what was most remarkable was the unity of the working class and the peasantry. The largest 10 trade unions in India supported the strike. And there were 250 farmers organizations that supported the strike. 
So they were together a formidable force. And this victory is so significant, it needs to be recognized, not only by the Indian people, but I think by the proletarians throughout the world. It's of great significance to them. It's really a case of a people from a relatively backward country showing the advanced countries what their future is, how they should be behaving when they're waging a struggle. You know, not like what happened in Britain. You know, you there's a war going to go on. You can collect two million people. They go to Hyde Park. They have a good day and we go home and the bombers continue new bombing. But in this case, the farmers did things which were absolutely remarkable and we need to appreciate that. I mean, it's a shame. U.S. media has said almost nothing about it. You would have no idea that this had even happened other than left-wing uh, voices. Uh, barely anything has been said. Um, and when you talk about, you know, the difference between the demonstrations uh, against the Iraq war that happened, uh, it, it's interesting to think about. I'm almost forced to think about historically um, because I understand there were big, long, uh, long marches uh, of these farmers, right? I mean, they were going from province to province and such. It, it forces me to think of in the in 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 Britain in the 1920s and 30s. I know there were like miners from Scotland would march down to London. Uh, you know, big long marches of unemployed, uh, you know, uh, miners uh, that were marching organized by the Communist Party. Uh, that that's kind of what comes to mind. You know, historically, this this uh, this you know these long long long-term demonstrations where people march for, for days and days and days. Um, I think we had similar things here in the United States with the unemployment councils uh, that were organized by the Communist Party that, that mobilized their forces for big hunger marches that would come to Washington, D.C., where it's, you know, people are people are desperate, they are suffering, and so they, they mobilize in big numbers and manifest themselves. And, and it's not just a one-day demonstration. It's not like, a, you know, a little, little gathering that everyone just goes to and then goes home. It's rather, you know, people throwing themselves in and, and refusing to leave. Well, that's, that's what ha happens when pe pe people are in a state of desperation. There's only one of two choices for them. Either you submit, submit to the dictates of capital and eke out an even more wretched existence or alternatively adopt a new weapon. And these farmers may not have been conscious that they were adopting a new weapon, but they, that's what they did. They had no option but to struggle and they came. And when they tried to approach Delhi, for example, um, Caleb, the um, government threw barricades and there were lots of police um, to tackle with them, uh, you know, with, with um, sticks and, and, and uh, shields and beat, 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 beat them up, erect barricades. But the farmers broke through the, the, those barricades. They brought their tractors they brought their farm machinery. And so they were not London protesters. They were proper protesters. They are people who are fighting for their very existence. And when people are fighting for their existence, every people are able to fight. You know, Americans fought in their war of independence. They fought a civil war where both sides put up a pretty good show. And, and, and so whichever side you were on, it was a real struggle. You had to actually put your life on the line to fight that. And that's what the farmers were doing. And they, 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 they just, just could, could not be stopped. And this is something most remarkable. Not only Western imperialist media, I would expect them to give it any publicity. Now, there might have been a few left-wing voices raised. Most of the left-wing has been shamefully silent on it. Just look at their press. You can have, even in the so-called left-wing press, huge amount of time devoted to some reactionary like Alexei Navalny as the, as the leader of the opposition in Russia. He's nobody. Yeah. You go to Russia, most Russians don't see him as anything except a corrupt person who is a flunky for imperialism. Uh, or you can find one or two dissidents in China you can find something similar somewhere else. These are their heroes. But the real struggles simply go unnoticed. And the left-wing press, and it's shameful that neither the Trade Union Congress in Britain nor any of the large trade unions gave any support to the farmer, str farm, farmer struggle. And 
It is because of the ravages of social democracy in the working class movement. The trade unions are obviously, first of all, they've got the politics of trade unionism, which is really basically bourgeois politics. Then on top of that, they have the influence of the Labour Party. They will not support anything that is anti-imperialist or anti-capitalist. And at bottom, that is what the farmers' movement was. And uh, it didn't get any mention. Yeah, well, you know, one thing to talk about the economics of this, uh, you know, we forget that, you know, agriculture and agribusiness in the United States is a way that U.S. imperialism dominates the world. I mean, you know, Mexico, for example, they've been growing their own food long before Christopher Columbus ever came. But in the 1990s, with the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, we were able to, you know, set up a situation uh, where because of, you know, American agribusiness is subsidized, they were were able to go in and undercut and put all the farmers of Mexico out of business um, and just you know wreck the agricultural sector of Mexico. Now Mexico imports most of its food from the United States. And similar things happened in Haiti in the 1990s. This was the, the Clinton administration's move. Um, and also uh, Russia. Uh, people don't talk about this, but at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, Russia had a very vibrant collective farm system, uh, but it was with the fall of the Soviet Union, I think it was like 80% of the collective farms in, in Russia, uh, they went under and Russia was forced to import its food from the United States and from Western Europe. Um, and, uh, and you know, you know, they were forced in the 1990s to import their food from the United States. And this is, this is, you know, kind of how imperialism works. It doesn't want people growing their own food. It doesn't want people having their own economy thriving and developing. It wants them to be captive markets. Uh, you know, uh, this is how imperialism works. And it seems like uh, they were going to open up uh, the vast agricultural sector of India to neoliberalism. And we're going to let uh, American and Western capitalist uh, agribusiness come in there and dominate it. And the Indian farmers stood up and said, no, I mean, that seems to be what's happening. Uh, it's also worth noting that, um, that, you know, Russia was importing most of its own, its, its food from the United States and, and elsewhere in the 1990s. But as a result of the 2014 sanctions, uh, you know, after the incident in Ukraine, there were sanctions imposed on Russia. Uh, Putin has revived the Russian agricultural sector. Uh, they are having the biggest harvests there they've ever had in history, largely because they've been forced to by the imperialists with the sanctions. And so now we see the Russian state kind of presiding over Russia's agricultural sector uh, expanding quite a bit. Uh, there's been a you know a big growth of Russian farms and such in response uh, in response to the sanctions. Um, and that that uh, I guess do you want to talk about the role of agriculture in in the economy? Do you want to reflect on that at all or? Well, the agriculture is very important to India because um, figures vary from one source to the other. At least 60% of the Indian population, workforce rather, is reliant on agriculture. Although agriculture only accounts for about 18 or 20% of the Indian GDP, in terms of providing employment, it's extremely important because most people still live in rural settings. Uh, India is not uh, urbanized in the way that China, for example, has become urbanized, where more than 50% of the Chinese now are urbanized. In India, it's more like 30 or 30, 35%. And so people live in the countryside. Countryside is extremely important to them, and they want to preserve, preserve, preserve their living. Imperialism, on the other hand, is hell-bent on cornering everything. That is what monopoly is. I mean, another word for imperialism is monopoly capitalism. We're not talking of old kind of empires. We're talking of new empires where a few uh, financially well-equipped countries actually have enmeshed the whole world in, in their indebtedness and strangulate the whole, whole world. So it makes sense from their point of view that nobody else should grow food and they should all be able to get food only from the imperialist countries. It even makes sense for them to be so inhumane as to produce, like Monsanto did, it's now owned by the Germans, uh, whereby you produce certain grains which can be, which will not reproduce. You could not use the crop from them in order to sow your fields. You got to buy again, again from them. That is their policy. That's what they're trying to do ev everywhere. And the farmers in India obviously uh, uh, resist that. 
Although there are a lot of slanders against Soviet agriculture, that it starved everybody, there was famine everybody. Soviet agriculture saved the Soviet people. Without yeah. Soviet agriculture, they would never have won the Second World War. Small yeah, agriculture. I mean, that's, that's how outrageous the narrative is, right? That it was the Soviet Union that built a modern agricultural system in Russia and in the surrounding countries, right? I mean, they brought, they brought the tractors, uh, they built the collective farm system, and there was malnutrition all the time before the Russian Revolution. Uh, there was malnutrition uh, as a result of the Civil War and such, and it was with Stalin's five-year plans, they built a modern agricultural system uh, with socialism. But we're given, we're, we're, we're told, you know, that, that the, some incident in Ukraine or something proves that the entire history of Soviet agriculture was nothing but starvation. When it's like, no, it's actually the opposite. Uh, the entire, the entire, the entire story is, is quite the opposite. It was, it was socialism that, that created a modern agricultural system in, in the Soviet Union. And the same for China. Uh, you know, I mean, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be a, a modern agricultural system in China if it wasn't for socialism either. Um, uh, so I, I, the, the, the emphasis in, in the Western narrative is they, they focus on, on a problem here or a problem there. It's like they, they, they're missing the forest for the trees, as they, as they say. If I can take the last, last point first, because it's so controversial. Everywhere it said there was a tremendous famine in, in Ukraine during the period of collectivization. Millions of people died and the Soviet Union was very happy to see them, see them die. There's a lovely book written by a, a neighbor of yours from, from Canada, Douglas Tuttle, on the Ukrainian famine, where he says all the pictures that were produced by the Hearst Press were actually from the famine that happened during the war of intervention and civil war. They had nothing, nothing to do with Ukraine. What's more, if so many people were actually dying, somebody would have seen the grave, somebody would see them being buried, and they could find no evidence. You have to look at the ration books. You have to look at the demographics, whether the population declined or increased during those, that, that period of time. And all that will prove that this is a total lie. But anyway, coming back, back to the question, there, there was modern agriculture in, in the Soviet Union. There is no future. This is something I want to refer, relate to the farmer struggle in India as well. We come to it in a minute. But the basic thing is there's no future for small agriculture anywhere. Only big agriculture can supply humanity with what it needs in the way of nutrition and calories and everything. So big new cap agriculture can come two ways. Either there is Soviet type collectivization with ordinary people collectivize and cooperate with each other and build a modern agriculture. And Soviet agriculture was actually an advance of American agriculture in terms of machinery. They had scientific ways of establishing machine and tractor stations, which were there to help and advise and give every assistance to the, to, to the collective farmers. So the alternative is the Small peasantry, as will happen in India, whether these law anti-farmer laws are passed or not, by the sheer working of the laws of capitalism, small farmers will disappear and their land will be taken over by big farmers. So there'll be a collectivization of a kind. So it's not that anybody is against collectivization. You have to choose whether you want collect capitalist collectivization or socialist collectivization under which the farmers are masters of their own, own future, and they participate in creating and sharing in prosperity. Sure. Well, you know, there's so many ways to, to come at this, but, you know, the monopoly of American agribusiness over the food markets manifests itself in some, some pretty shocking ways. For example, there's high fructose corn syrup. Uh, that is in almost everything you eat. I mean, uh, in the United States, but but all over the world. I mean, if you eat, you know, if you eat anything, you're going to find it on the ingredients list high fructose corn syrup. That's because that's grown in the United States. That's you know, that's corn that comes from the United States, and that's a way that American agribusiness kind of subsidizes and and is is you know is influenced all over the world. And 
and it it shouldn't be in a lot of foods, but that's what's what's in food all over the world because of the domination of American agribusiness. Um, and uh, it's not very healthy, high fructose corn syrup. If you look at the health effects, it's really not very good for you. Uh, but this is how the imperialists have set up their markets, and it's how they can they can ensure the domination of American agribusiness. It manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Um, one thing I will say that I saw in Nicaragua. Uh, was that uh, in Nicaragua when I was there and I saw what the Sandinistas are doing and uh, you know one thing that they have very much tried to do is avoid this gap between city and countryside which is manifesting all over the world I mean here in the United States uh, we're seeing just the you know the falling apart of the rural areas people are, are moving to urban centers you know rural life is just collapsing but all over the developing world it's far worse I mean with the neoliberalism and just destroying the countryside so you have younger people from the countryside moving to urban areas uh, living in poverty, being very badly exploited, you have a rise in drug use and crime, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have this gap between the city and the countryside expanding, uh, being, being essentially bad for everybody. Um, whereas in Nicaragua, uh, they've made a big point of, uh, of trying to subsidize the rural areas. And you know, they have the slogan, grow where you are planted, you know, urging folks from rural areas to remain in the rural areas, but cooperate with the government to develop uh, the rural areas. So it's uh, you don't have this gap, uh, which is one aspect of, of the way capitalism is going in the age of neoliberalism is kind of kind of, you know, exacerbating the divide between city and countryside. And one thing I've noticed, uh, I, I believe in the Communist Manifesto at the very end, when Karl Marx lists his planks, uh, the 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto, one of them is to break down the divide between city and countryside. So uh, I think that's particularly interesting as well. Oh, absolutely. But, but you see, that, that divide cannot be broken under the conditions of, of, of capitalism. Capitalism attracts people to the urban centers. That's where the livelihood is. That's where uh, wages can be earned. That's where money money can be made. But socialism, on the other hand, with, with planned development, is able to bring the countryside to the towns who are starved of any country condition and is able to bring town to the countryside in the sense that it brings science, it brings culture, it brings education, it brings theatres, it brings cinema, it brings all the modern amenities of life. If you visited an old Soviet collector farm, it was literally a wondrous place to behold. People working in the best of rural conditions and then not being deprived of modern facilities, roads, water, running water, heating of premises, and every facility that, that a town person enjoys, but none of the disadvantages of living in extremely congested congested places, so that 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 was done, but of course there were towns, big towns, and it would be a while before the total distinction between countryside and the towns is eliminated. For that, number of conditions have to be satisfied, uh, and and rural productivity has to be increased, and of course there's going to be a shift from agriculture to industry, but industry does not necessarily have to be only in three or four large towns of the country and nowhere else. Industrial centers can be built all over the all over the place. Uh, agriculture can only absorb so many people and no, 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 no more. And with increasing productivity, every sector needs less. What happens under socialism when there's increased productivity and fewer people are required, you reduce their number of hours of work. There's no need to work people to death 12, 12 hours a day. If you don't need that, they can work eight hours, they can work six hours, they can work four hours. And in the Soviet Union, even in the 30s, people who were working in hazardous conditions and industries that were dangerous to health, they worked only four or five hours a day. Uh, Soviet Union in the, in the 30s had introduced a 35-hour week which in the imperialist countries even now is not reality. And so you do everything possible to bring, an, bring to a narrower state the gap between the countryside and the rural, whereby the rural people don't consider the townsfolk as being their exploiters, but as comrades in partnership who are working towards, towards the same end. So once you abolish Landlordism, once you abolish 
land rent, once you abolish the private ownership of land, you already have laid the basis for working people in the countryside trusting the townspeople. They're no longer indebted, they're no longer subject to money lenders and sharks of various kinds. It makes me think actually what both of you were saying, um, you know, the kind of insanity that capitalism engenders, um, whereby things which are vital for people's existence become commodities and become separated from their raison d'etre. So houses, which are supposed to be homes for people, are a commodity. And whether or not people have homes is irrelevant to the housing market and the sale price of these commodities. And, you know, with the food industry, with agriculture, agribusiness, you know, it's not merely mechanization for efficiency. It, you know, the, the motivation of maximum profit takes us to a point where the fact that this is food and food is required for nutrition and for health is the one of the most, you know, after oxygen and water, you know, it's what you, human beings need it most essentially to survive and thrive, uh, becomes irrelevant to the people who are producing that commodity, like to the point where they are purposefully marketing stuff at us, which is basically poison because it's profitable. Um, it's they've made it addictive, um, but this this thing with um, America kind of or the USA uh, dominating the world agriculturally, you know, there's a there's an interesting parallel even in Britain. You know, we are also an imperialist country, but after the war, you know, we're in a weak position, uh, very reliant on American money and favors, and um, you know, there was up until that point in Britain, our agriculture had been mixed farming. So you kind of rotate between animals and crops in a field and the animals uh, kind of revitalize the soil, turn it over, put new nutrients into it, then you grow something and, and you keep that cycle going. And they did a survey of British farms. You know, before the war, Britain had become very unself-sufficient in food. It was importing a huge proportion of its food. Then during the war, because we're in Ireland, because of the um, you know, threat from the German U-boats and everything, we were trying to become self-sufficient. And self-sufficiency was a big topic during and just after the war. And there are some uh, experts did a survey of Britain, Britain's farmland, and said, actually, we have, using, um, using these uh, mixed farming methods, we have uh, enough farmland, good enough farmland, to self-sufficiently serve, you know, feed uh, a population of 100 million. Now, our population is still nowhere near 100 million, and we are nowhere, we are further than ever away from self-sufficiency. And one of the things that uh, made that happen was that the USA, uh, after the war, turned a lot of its armaments factories into nitrates producing factories, uh, chemical fertilizers. And then they had this big global campaign to get everyone to take their fertilizers and change their model of farming. And of course, what we now know is that the model where you buy, you plant crops in the same field all the time in perpetuity and you re replenish the soil with nitrates doesn't work. We're killing the soils. Then you're using huge amount of pesticides and, and fungicides and, you know, we're, we're killing our biodiversity. We're actually growing food, which is itself not very healthy because it's full of, of chemicals. Uh, it's, uh, the soil it's grown in is depleted of nutrients, you know, and not only that, but um, the, the soil is sort of dying and therefore not able to soak up uh, carbon as it would have done. So we have right there, there's a really simple way to solve the health crisis, I, you know, obesity and everything, you know, grow healthier food, right? Take it out of the hands of the processing industry and just grow proper decent food and, and, and supply it to people. You can uh, soak up a huge amount of carbon, Possibly, if you replenish the whole of the world's soils to a decent standard, you could end the, the climate crisis just with that measure. Nobody talks about it, you know. Um, and yet, agribusiness says, no, 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 no. Uh, we must chase after, we, you know, uh, maximum profit means processing our food, means means producing it in the cheapest way possible, the most mechanized way possible. And, you know, the, the impetus to use certain products, like Dad said, using the grains that um, don't produce seeds because someone makes a profit out of that. You know, the, the logic of monopoly is total insanity. And it, you know, actually drives people to, to, to ill health, to sickness, to death, you know, in its wake and, and cares nothing for it. 
you know, because it has that the logic is the logic of, of profit and, and monopolization. Uh, and, and so the, the function of food becomes totally separated from the motivation of the people who grow the food. You know, and I guess that's what the come back to the farmers. They were trying to fight against that process. Um, but, you know, Paul's also right. You know, ultimately, it's not small farming, which is going to be our way out of this. You know, it's planned farming um, for the, you know, producing nutritious food for the benefit of the population is is obviously what we need to see. Um, but, you know, coming back to the farmers, maybe to round up our conversation, I guess um, it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on what this means for the BJP government. You know, a lot of people have been very shocked by how they've managed to cling on to power for so long, despite kind of showing their true colours quite some time ago. Um, do you think that that we might see some change there now? That, that there's been such a united movement against Narendra Modi and, and his party? I, th I, th I think there will be a very healthy I echo when I speak now. We can hear you all right. Okay. Yeah, but this, this, this movement for the first time in several years has brought different communities together, workers and peasants, Muslims and non-Muslims. Non, non, non and in fact, one of the reasons that these three laws have been repealed is not only because Modi was faced with a choice of either capitulating or using excessive force to crush this movement, which has its own fearful consequences. Uh, you know, if people have come to fight, you don't know where it, where it will end. So what's happening is that in, in the coming months, in February, March, elections are being held in some very important northern Indian states, Punjab, Haryana, and UP. UP is the largest state in India. It sends the largest number of members to Indian Indian Parliament, and although it's ruled by the BJP now, and it's headed by nut nut cases, total nut nut cases, there has been an erosion in their support because the movement of the farmers is not only Punjabi, not only from the people of Haryana, which were very prominent because they're close close to Delhi, and you see them all the time. It was all over the country. And it was in UP as well. It was so much spreading in UP and it annoyed the BJP so much that one of their, uh, the cars registered to a member of uh, the U UP government drove into a farmer's rally and murdered six, four, four people, uh, in, 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 which aroused a tremendous amount of outrage. And it's the subject of, of investigation. When that was taken, taking place, there was a danger that the BJP might lose uh, uh, UP. If, if it loses UP, it basically loses Northern India. In Punjab already, there's a non-BJP non, uh, government and, and Haryana could change, change hands as well. So they were very worried. They have in the past few years, they lost the state assembly elections in Bengal. Even during the pandemic, they hold, held big rallies uh, in, in, in Bengal to be able to win. They lost very badly. So people are seeing through it. And one of the slogans issued by this, the Farmers and Workers United movement in the recent strike was, you know, for a socialist and secular India. You know, both these things are anathema to the BJP. So people are beginning to think in those terms. It's really the working class that needs to get organized. If the communists of India organize themselves very well and bring the workers and peasants further together and wage united struggles, there is a tremendous amount of hope. The BJP government won't last forever. It will be a little dot in history. Nobody will remember it. That They have nothing to offer to the Indian people. Uh, uh, and, and I'm sure in, in the end, progressive policies will prevail. Well, let, let me ask this question, because I think it's very important, because, you know, this is going to go out on the Internet, and that a lot of the, the young communists on the Internet, especially in the United States or in, in Britain, when it comes to politics in India, they are a little bit delusional. 
Um, because I know in India you have a massive communist party. Uh, you have a massive communist party of India Marxists. You have the Socialist Unity Center of India. Um, but for some reason, among young Marxists in the West, there's this belief that somehow the Naxals, uh, the Naxalites, they are they are the, the, the force of revolution in India uh, and that they're leading the struggle because they have guns and it's so romantic and they're the only force we should pay attention to. Can you uh, can you kind of refute uh, this delusion and talk about uh, why the Naxals are not really uh, leaders of the struggle in India and, and, and who is really leading it in terms of India's communist movement? <laughs> Before I answer this question, I'm reminded of something which I've said it so often that probably is boring. I think it was Voltaire who was in his deathbed and was asked the question, do you still not believe in God? And his answer was, now is not the time to make new enemies. <laughs> uh, really, my own personal view is that the Communist Party of India Marxists, which is the largest, it needs the revolutionary spirit, the spirit to make a revolution that the Naxalite movement injected uh, after a long hiatus in India. And the next slides need to get their, their, their program right. They have revolutionary zeal, they make a lot of sacrifices, but without a correct policy, you cannot win. You have to have the policy of mobilizing the working class and the peasantry on, on, on a program. And in my view, they have not been able to get, 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 it, get, it, get it so far. The Communist Party of India, on the other hand, has gone so much down the parliamentary track. Everything is reliant on winning elections. So you have 20 members in parliament, you've got 50. And the next election is reduced to 25. You ruled the state of West Bengal for 27 years, you no longer do. So this can carry on forever. Unless, unless the Indian communists have the support of the Indian working class. You know, Indian communists have much more support in the countryside than they have in the towns. How can a party of the proletariat not have absolute dominance among the working class? Among the working class, it's the non-communist unions that happen to be very, very uh, prominent. There's a Congress party organization, there's the BJP party organization, but it's not just trade unions. Yes, city is a city too. The center of Indian trade unions is very powerful. It's got tens of millions of members in it. But the basic thing is, does the Communist Party of India have actually enough influence among the working class, the proletariat in the large centers of industry, be they Delhi, be they Mumbai, be, be they Ahmedabad and all the other place, places. And that, that, that is, that is a real, real problem. Yes, there are a lot of communists in India, but you know, as May West used to say, it's not the men in your life, it's the life in your men. You know, communists have got to have the revolutionary spirit and a revolutionary program to mobilize their people. You know, we need to return to the Bolshevik ways and not give up this Khrushchevite parliamentary politics, which is not taking us anywhere. Yeah, and what about the Socialist Unity Center of India? It's uh, a very large trade union. It, it organizes strikes. Uh, it, it, it's good. It's good. It's good. Um, I've got nothing against the Socialist Unity Center, but Socialist Unity Center of India can only do what a trade union does. You need the political party to give the direction to the working class, and that, in my view, is not there um, in, in sufficient quantities. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, from years of, you know, sort of looking from very far, you know, also, my impression has always been that there, there are parties which are strong with the peasantry or there are parties which are strong with the working class. And there hasn't been a party that's been able to bring those two together in alliance. And in a country like India, especially when both of those are so vital, you know, there's a huge proletariat in India and a huge peasantry. You definitely can't ignore either of those forces. And of course, for socialism, you know, as Paul said, you need the working class, you need the proletarians in the vanguard of that struggle, but they need to be able to mobilize 
um, the workers, the, the peasants with them. And what's really frustrating is to see, you know, the Naxalites have tapped into the fact that that thirst, that hunger for social change, that 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 uh, readiness to make sacrifice in the in the cause of socialism is there. It's absolutely there. Um, the Naxalites haven't been able to join that up with, you know, a, a, a full socialist program that, that encompasses the entire country, and nor has anybody else. And then, um, you know, that's a real a, a tragedy for India. Uh, you know, we, you only have to look at the, the, the difference in, in living standards and outcomes for the masses in India uh, compared to China to see what a tragedy it has been for India the last 70 years to not have that type of leadership for its working mass masses. Wow. I mean, the, the, the Indian independence movement ended with a messy compromise between imperialism and the Indian nationalist movement on the one hand, and secondly, between the working class and the landowning gentry on the other. And so you carried on with, the, with, 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 with certain traditions and conditions whereby there was no agrarian revolution. That has been the tragedy of India, that feudalism was not uprooted root, root and branch. And that's what the Chinese revolution did. Chinese can never go back to pre-revolutionary times because they got rid of feudalism. They expelled imperialism from their country. They raised the status of women in, 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 in their, their country. And they got on with de de developing heavy industry as the basis of all industrial development, including that of agriculture. That is what not has taken place in India. The differences between you know, surgical amputation and slow putrefaction. And this is what has happened. The Chinese have indulged in surgical amputation. They got rid of all that was holding their society back in India that has not taken place because the ruling class has made a compromise with the landowning gentry and with imperialism. So we are obviously left with that legacy. And as long as the Soviet Union was alive, there was a certain amount of leverage that the Indian bourgeoisie exercised, which actually helped them to develop industries which would not have developed. India would have no steel industry, but for the help of the Soviet Union. America and Britain would not help India to develop the first large steel plant. So the Soviet Union did. Once the Soviet Union did, so did America, so did, so, so, so did Britain, so did Germany. You know, so there was competition at that time that you could utilize. The, the Indian industry could rely on the market in the Soviet Union. India, sections of in, sectors of Indian agriculture could rely on the market in the, in the Soviet Union. So they had they had a, had a leeway around. They could rely also in the purchase of armaments, etc. Uh, not that the Indian ruling classes used all its elements in a, in, 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 a, in, a, in a proper way. They're more, more inclined to fight against our neighbors than, than they are to fight against imperialism. Wow. Now, I'm really conscious, guys, that we've gone way over our time, which I kind of thought we probably would, just on one topic. I had one last question, but Caleb, you have to tell me first whether you have time. Or I have time. Go ahead. <laughs> Do you mind? Not at all. Go Might ahead. as well wrap this up, Pay. Um, because I hear a lot of people now, obviously, it's pretty clear that the, the government of Narendra Modi, the BJP government, is ex is a populist government, uh, is extremely reactionary, is communal, it stirs up and incites communal hatred uh, constantly in order to keep itself in power. Um, but does that make it fascist? I uh, constantly hear people bandying this word around fascist, 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 and they use it so freely in so many contexts that it sort of loses all meaning. Um, and I wondered, Hopal, what are your views about whether the word fascist is an appropriate label to apply to Narendra Modi and the BJP? It, it doesn't. Every repressive government, every divisive government is not fascist. Fascism has a specific meaning. It applies really, basically, to monopoly, monopoly capitalism and the grip of a serious crisis where uh, the ruling class fears a revolution or is responding to a failed failed revolution. It doesn't take place everywhere. Tsarists were repressive, but they were not fa fascist. 
There are a lot of repressive governments around the, uh, around the world, but they're not fascist. This can only be applied in specific conditions. And the world has witnessed fascism in Italy. It has witnessed fascism in, Ger in, 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 in Germany. And it has witnessed fascism in Japan. It hasn't witnessed, uh, uh, it hasn't witnessed in, in, in Britain or America for the simple reason, American ruling class uh, 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 monopoly and, and the British ruling class monopoly has never been re under serious threat. There's no need for them to resort to fascism. Fascism is not some fashion. It's not like flare trousers. You get it because everybody else has got flare trousers. It is something that you, it has dire consequences for the working class as well as for the ruling class. It means they can no longer rule by the old deceptive parliamentary methods. And, and first of all, the concept doesn't apply to non-imperialist countries. And even if you were to by somehow extend it to, to, uh, to non-imperialist countries, the Indian ruling classes up to now have been able to rule by deception. They use parliamentary methods, etc., which of course, uh, qualifies them to be called the largest democracy in the world. Half of its children may be malnourished, but it's still the largest democracy. You still get invited to some imperialist jamboree like the summit, summit of Demo democracy, where countries like Israel, which represses Palestinians, and India, which represses large sections of its population, which actually makes impose malnutrition and subhuman conditions on, on, on its children and on people living in crowded places. But they are, of course, democratic. They're democratic because they align themselves with imperialism. Whenever imperialism is ready for a war somewhere, they're they are ready to join, join forces. It's a bit like Britain. Britain is involved in every war. They, they don't even have to receive an invitation from America. They just tag along because they find that their future is tied to American imperialism. And the Indian ruling class is try, trying to do that. They're trying to fight against China, but it would have very, very harmful consequences for the Indian, Indian people. And it would be a tragedy if we were to repeat 1962, when we had a fight with China for absolutely no, no, no reason whatever. On Macmahon Line, Macmahon Line is not a line drawn like that. It's a large forested area. And the Chinese told the Indian Prime Minister Nehru, look, this is not a line drawn by us or by you. It's a line drawn by imperialism at a time when neither the Chinese nor the Indian people were in charge of their own, their own affairs. We can sort it out by negotiations. But certain elements within India egged Nehru on to have a fight. China had gone through three difficult periods of drought and floods. China's relations with the Soviet Union were bad, and American imperialism, of course, hate, hated China. So they thought they'll win within a matter of days. And little did they realize that People's Liberation Army literally came all the way into large swathes of Indian territory, which, by the way, they advocated voluntarily. It, conquering nations hardly ever, ever do that. During that time, they had a large number of Indian soldiers captured. They didn't treat them badly. They took them to the dining rooms where they mixed with Chinese soldiers who explained to them, we are friends with India. We have nothing against Indian people. It's your ruling class that nation. you fight against us. And of course, the Indian government cried foul that they are actually conducting propaganda among our soldiers. But what do you expect them to do? You're waging a war against them. They're only telling the, the Indian soldiers what they think is the right thing, thing to tell. So uh, Modi's government is not a fascist government. It wouldn't please many of my countrymen who love to describe him as a fascist. I mean, if you want to use it to the four-lettered word, that's fine. But words must be used to convey a specific meaning. And if it doesn't convey that meaning, you better not use that. I would, I would be happy to call them, uh, you know, a, a divisive forces of, who are religious fundamentalists and not, not cases. And we have to fight against them with science. I mean, they come up with ludicrous stories. 
that India had plastic surgery 3,000 years ago. India was flying helicopters 3,000 years ago because Indian mythology has creatures which are flying around. So has Greek mythology. But it hasn't occurred to Greek modern people to say that they had all this uh, during those days. All their gods could do everything that modern science can do. But that's not going to help the Greek people to rely on what Apollo did and what various acolytes of other deities did. And India has plenty of them. You know, you only have to read Indian mythology. It's rich in characters of all, all kinds. But that is not a basis uh, on which you would found modern India any more than you will uh, learn about French history by reading the, ma the comical uh, ma magazine Asterix. Thanks, Dad. Caleb, did you have anything more to add? No, I, I think I've said everything I need to say, but uh, this was a lovely conversation and I look forward to uh, to doing this more often. Uh, right? Uh, we'll be Most, doing de yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. And, um, thank you, Jyoti, and thank you, Caleb. And before you both go, may I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Same to Thanks you. Thanks you, to you, to both of you, and to everybody listening and watching. Uh, I really hope you've enjoyed listening to our first Morpin and Braring conversation. Um, we hope to be back in a couple of weeks' time with another episode. Uh, in the meantime, if you've got questions you'd like um, Caleb and Rapal to discuss, you know, drop them into the comments. We'll add them to our list and um, do our best to get round to them. So until next time, alal salam to you all, and thank you for joining us. Thank you.